0: In the Christian New Testament, we have four different biographies of Jesus. They go by the names Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's probably better to think of them as artistic portraits, expressionistic portraits, in which each one of those authors uh, used unique language and phrasing in order to to describe Jesus and his ministry and his message. So it follows that we also have, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different experiences of the Easter story, four different ways of telling it. For our celebration of Easter this year, I am going to be telling the Easter story as related to us through the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. In the name of God, the Creator, the Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A few weeks ago, we started to distribute this form in anticipation of our Easter celebration. It's an Easter flower form. And on this form, it's possible for friends and members of the church to write out a dedication for Easter flowers in honor or memory of loved ones. Susan and I decided to fill out one of these forms. We wanted to say to the congregation how grateful that we have been here for 10 years of ministry. That was the purpose of our flower dedication. Now I drew the short straw, so I had to write out the dedication, and uh, unfortunately my handwriting is a little resistant to easy interpretation. So when the office staff saw what I had written, they decided to take their best guess at what I was trying to say, which means they had to engage in some serious decoding work. And what they came up with wasn't exactly in line with our intentions. So when I saw a first draft of the Order of Service, which also included all the Easter dedications in the back, I wanted to read ours, just, you know, to see how it looked. And instead of saying, with great affection and gratitude for all the love and support we have received during the past 10 years of ministry at Round Hill Community Church, it said, with great affection and gratitude for all the love and support we have received during the past 10 years of uncertainty at Round Hill Community Church. This is not exactly what we were after. It made me think that, you know, 10 years ago when I arrived, that someone had said to me, well, welcome, Ed. Too bad we can't promise you a single day of job security. To which I would have replied, well, thank you, because clearly uncertainty is everything to us well we corrected the wording so for the easter sunday of order of service it says what we wanted it to say in the first place however i could not help but think that there was a little truth in the mistake if that makes sense and here's what i'm thinking uncertainty is woven into our lives in almost every imaginable way we're anxious during times of transition because we can't confidently predict how things are going to turn out. We have our high hopes, but no guarantees. During the pandemic, the phrase five-year strategic plan practically dissolved into thin air. It was good for a laugh, and that was about it. These days, many of the conversations that I have with people about the future can't help but prompt deep feelings of uncertainty about what the world is going to look like five years from now, let alone 55 years from now. The writer Joan Didion once said that we tell ourselves stories in order to live. Well, what kind of stories are we going to tell each other? What kind of stories are we going to tell our children and our grandchildren as we try to figure out how to live in this world at this time with the particular challenges that we're facing? What kind of stories are we going to tell that can help us to live with uncertainty and to live through it? As we figure out what we mean by that little word, live, what's the content of that word for us? What does it mean to think of fullness of life for ourselves and people across the world? One of our more helpful guides on this adventure may turn out to be Brene Brown. She's a teacher, an author, a public speaker who has dedicated her entire life to the exploration of human vulnerability. Giving it pride of place as a virtue that can make us wiser, more resilient, more supple as we lean into the unknown. In her book, daring greatly she makes a provocative comment vulnerability she says is not weakness it's our greatest measure of courage it is the birthplace of innovation creativity and change she says that vulnerability is the emotion that we experience during times of uncertainty risk and emotional exposure In her most recent research, she says, on courage and leadership, the ability to embrace vulnerability emerged as the prerequisite for all of the daring leadership behaviors. She says that in a world where perfectionism, pleasing, and constantly proving our value are used as armor to protect our egos and our feelings, it takes a lot of courage to show up and be all in when we can't control the outcome. She has an interesting definition of the word faith. She says that faith is a place of mystery where we find the courage to believe in what we cannot see and the strength to let go of our fear of uncertainty. So in her way of thinking, there's a sense in which we are called to be vulnerable And if that is true, then Jesus was one of the most vulnerable people who ever lived. He was in some ways constantly putting himself in positions of uncertainty, taking risks for compassion and mercy and forgiveness, not controlling the outcomes, but constantly infusing the world with the energy of love and then in some senses, stepping back to see how that would work. Without vulnerability, There's no oxygen for love. There's no authenticity. After all, if we're always putting up a front, always putting forth a perfect self, some idea we have of an ideal self, then who we are with all of our faults and foibles can never come through, that authentic self. Without vulnerability, there's no possibility of forgiveness because we would never take the risk of putting ourselves in a position where we might actually be hurt again. And without vulnerability, we cannot take the risks that eventually could lead to innovation or greater compassion. When I was 16 years old, I saw a demonstration of what Brene Brown is talking about, and it has shaped for my entire life my understanding of what it means to be called to be vulnerable. When I was 16, That was the year when my father was diagnosed with a terminal illness. And he was scheduled for surgery, not because this was going to cure him, but because it was needed in order to alleviate the symptoms that were causing him great suffering. So, on the night before his surgery, my mother had gone to the hospital right after dinner to be with him and I had some things to do and I was on my way right behind her. And when I arrived in the hospital room, I was absolutely stunned because my mother was there, but my older brother, Gary, was also there. And I was stunned because my father and my older brother, Gary, had not spoken for six years. They had had absolutely no physical contact, any kind of contact, after a horrible falling out. And yet here they were, these two men, talking, even laughing. I must have stood in the doorway with my mouth wide open and my eyes bulging out of my head. I suspect, though I never exactly found out that my mother was behind this. However, even if that had been the case, it took the vulnerability of these two men to drop their guard, to be seen in highly fragile states in order to come back together. For me, as a young man, that was an incredibly powerful thing to see. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. I have a lot of affection for the Easter stories because when my belief is eclipsed by my unbelief, which can happen a lot, I feel like these stories believe for me. They draw me into their energy. They draw me into their miracle. The people who wrote them down or spoke them so that others could write them down gave us the best possible good news we could ever get, that God's resurrection power is a force. It can bring hope out of despair, love out of hatred, reconciliation out of division, and life out of death. And that good news breathed new life into the little community of Jesus' friends who were about as vulnerable as you can get. They were devastated by his death, full of fear, stumbling along in life, dried out by grief. Yet the God of surprises broke into their world, gave them a second wind, and they became the leaders of a new generation of people who infected the Roman Empire with the love of Christ. When the sociologist, Rodney Stark, wanted to find out how exactly Christianity grew from a little marginal expression of religion around Jerusalem through the entire Roman Empire in the course of about 300 years until it actually became the official religion of the Roman Empire, he found something that there was a uniqueness that the Christian religion brought that was unlike any other. He says that to cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family to cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. In other words, Christianity spread around the Mediterranean world for the first 300 years of its existence fueled by the energy of compassion, which I think was motivated by the resurrection power of God. That resurrection power doesn't take away the uncertainty of life. It certainly didn't even for the first Christians. But it gives us a way to move with it, to live through it, and maybe even to enjoy it. In his poem, Manifesto, the Mad Farmer Liberation Front, the Kentucky poet and farmer Wendell Berry has a playful way of describing what it's like to live out this resurrection power of God. He says, friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Love someone who does not deserve it. Ask the questions that have no answers. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. And he ends his poem with two words, practice resurrection. Now practicing resurrection sounds like a pretty tall order. Can you imagine someone saying to you, so, hey, what kinds of things do you like to do at your church? And you say, I would like to practice resurrection. I bet that will get a response. But when Jesus said to his followers during his lifetime, greater things shall you do than I have done, those greater things, that way of practicing resurrection can actually begin in very simple ways, like starting with human contact. When I read the Easter stories, here's something that strikes me. They don't show a resurrected Jesus flying through the air with lightning bolts flowing from his fingers. These stories are magnificently ordinary. The resurrection stories, where Jesus interacts with his disciples after his death, are all about human contact. He meets them face to face. He gives them peace. He gives them some directions. He eats with them. From our point of view, nothing really spectacular. And there is one really precious moment though when he meets Mary Magdalene outside the tomb. And something about his, him is different. He's the same Jesus, but he's completely different. So she doesn't recognize him. She mistakes him for a groundskeeper. And he says to her, Mary. And then she recognizes him and she says, "Rabuni," which means teacher. In that beautiful moment, They meet face to face, and I think that the resurrection power of God must have absolutely soaked its way into Mary's life and her sense of hopefulness about the future. I was reading an article recently, an old article actually, that I had been keeping around by the writer Anna Quinlan, And she said something that made me think about that meeting between Jesus and Mary. She said in an article that she wrote some years ago, the greatest challenge of this century, now that's setting the bar fairly high, is going to be to avoid becoming a faceless society with all that suggests and portends. The change in the way modern human beings know one another And the world has happened so incrementally and yet so quickly that it's almost impossible to assess its ultimate psychological cost. Looking someone straight in the eye is an age-old incentive to do the right thing. But there's precious little of it in the computer world. Sometimes it seems that what people want most is the one thing they no longer have. Human contact. Over and over again, in those Easter stories, the one thing that people enjoy most is contact. Recently, a group of members from Round Hill Community Church joined uh, the work of an organization called Breakfast Run, led by, and Shannon White, our associate pastor, led a group of people into New York City recently to provide basic necessities and food and uh, conversation with people who are homeless. And as we talked with people after they returned from that experience and asked them, what did they see? What did they learn from that experience? The most precious part of the whole experience for them was the opportunity to meet those individuals most in need in person, face to face, to listen and to learn and have a chance to talk with one another. That is an experience of practicing resurrection. We can practice resurrection in that way by moving more deeply into relationships where we can offer more love, more compassion, more attention. We can do that with friends, with strangers, with nature. And thank God for the people in our lives who encourage us to step out of our comfort zones in order to open ourselves up to reach out for new experiences and greater life and love. I once heard a wonderful interview that Bill Moyers conducted with John Sexton, who for quite a number of years was president of NYU. And here's a man that Bill Moyers said "You, to John Sexton, look, you grew up in a relatively impoverished neighborhood in Brooklyn, you know, how was it that you got all the way to become the president of New York University and have so much uh, impact on the students and the faculty and the administration there and the mission of the university. And John Sexton said, well, it all started with Charlie. Charlie was the name of one of his uh, high school teachers. And John Sexton said, Charlie had a phrase, play another octave of the piano. He said, he would go on to say, if there's food you haven't tasted, if there's a symphony you haven't heard, if there's a type of music you haven't heard, play another octave of the piano. Reach out, stretch yourself, and just imagine, I'm thinking, all the ways that we could practice that wisdom. The church offers so many opportunities for learning, serving, worship, fellowship, and I think The churches that are going to be most relevant in the future are the ones who are willing to investigate this wisdom, who are constantly encouraging their members and their friends to reach out for experiences of greater compassion, greater love, the the feeling of becoming more fully alive. Jesus did not appear to his disciples after his resurrection and say, you know, if I was you, I'd play it safe. Instead, he said, go, go and tell your friends that you've seen me, go to Galilee and I will meet you there. He was always encouraging them to move out into the world to make themselves vulnerable to more experience, more interaction with people, to find out more ways of how to love one another and the world. So my working definition of a church is a community of vulnerable people who practice resurrection, who are good organizers, that would be great, but also good at living with mystery, leaning into the unknown. We can be for one another an experience of grace and peace even as we live with significant uncertainty. We can be that experience of grace and peace for the wider world, for creation itself, whether that's working on projects that help us to solarize our campus, or whether we're joining with others to end gun violence, or whether we're taking time to travel to New York City to work with people who are especially fragile and vulnerable and in need. And I have a dream that in years to come, the message that will be delivered at Easter will not so much come from one person like a preacher but will be a time of sharing that's open for the congregation involving children as well as adults where we will get to tell the stories of our lives about where we are practicing resurrection. We tell our stories in order to live, says Joan Didion, and that's exactly what we could be doing on Easter Sunday. So Round Hill Community Church, thank you for 10 years of uncertainty. Thank you for 10 years of ministry. Thank you for 10 years of friendship and collaboration. Here's to many more years when we can celebrate Easter over and over again and practice resurrection together, now and always. Amen.